This is Rod Allen. And this is John Almeida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, today we have uh, Suzanne Dillon with us. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Suzanne today. As chair of the OECD's 2030 project, Suzanne has a lot to share with us about her experience in moving large groups of human beings and, in fact, nations um, forward on an ambitious education transformation agenda. We all know how challenging it can be to move a school staff or a, uh, an entire school or a district forward. Um, can only imagine how complex that is when you're dealing with a, with a whole number of, of nations. Uh, the OECD 2030 work highlights the need for our young people to, to develop global competencies. Uh, in, in my time, and, and as long as I've known Suzanne, she's just a brilliant example of someone who models these global competencies. And so we'll have uh, lots to talk about with Suzanne um, about the work of, of, uh, of OECD 2030. So Suzanne, welcome. Thanks, Rod. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you very much for having me here on your podcast. So, um, yeah, Rod, you know, so it's only really interesting. Um, when I was preparing for this podcast, I actually um, looked at some of the work that we've been doing in the Education 2030 project, and I was drawing out lessons, which I hope as we go through this conversation, I can share with you. But actually, I then got really cheeky, and I decided quite independently of group, I would draw out some lessons myself, which were reflections on how we've worked together as a group. So it speaks directly to what you were saying in your introduction. I think you credit me with um, Herculean powers. I'm not sure I have them, but, uh, but I certainly um, have a couple of, of insights that I'm very happy to share. Brilliant, brilliant. I think that'll, that'll be uh, just, just fabulous for our, our listeners. Um, Suzanne, maybe you could begin uh, by just briefly describing the work of the Education 2030 project for folks that, that may not know about it. What is Education 2030 with the OECD? The mandate for our Education 2030 project comes from the Education Policy Subcommittee of the OECD. And the OECD is a conglomerate of interested countries who come together sharing economic and other cultural interests. So um, they cooperate together on a whole range of issues. And the Education Directorate is that umbrella body for all those questions of education, which exercise uh, and inspire participating countries. So our specific project um, really uh, arose out of a growing awareness internationally. We, you know, as at the turn of the century, isn't it great to be able to say the turn of the century at this stage? Um, but way back 20 years ago, there was a, an emerging awareness that actually we couldn't predict the future. And the future wasn't something that was awfully far away. Um, it was actually proximate and close and coming at us faster than we had anticipated. Um, so countries were concerned about things like what kind of work will there be for young people? What will citizenship mean when you have global movements um, in terms of commerce and economics? But you also have things like the growth of the European Union, um, the breakup of the old USSR and all those kind of geopolitical threads through the 80s and 90s and into the new century, that we're shaking up old certainties. And how should education prepare young people for that world of uncertainty? And I know lots of people will have heard this. I can't even remember to whom I should ascribe the quote, but the notion that the jobs of tomorrow have not yet been invented and today's jobs will be obsolete within a week. So in that spirit of uncertainty, volatility, um, constant change, OECD countries got together and said, we really need to start asking big questions about education systems and, and specifically about the curriculum, the content of those systems and how it's preparing young people. And it's out of that in 2015, our project was given the mandate to look at two types of questions. The first one set of questions were around what should we be teaching young people? 
what should they be learning in school? What kinds of skills, knowledge, attitudes and values are necessary for them to be able to thrive, to flourish in a world that we can't foresee, that we can't predict? And the second set of questions were, well, once we answer the what questions, how do we go about ensuring that's what actually happens? So really, there are two phases to the project. And that first phase, addressing the what questions, ran from 2015 to 2019. And it culminated in 2019 with the publication of the OECD 2030 Learning Compass, which is a graphic expression of the sum of all the considerations we had been doing. So that's the history in, in a nutshell. Uh, and we've been moving since 2019 to look at the how implementation issues. So this is a, a podcast and thus uh, we can't hold up the, the learning compass. Uh, can you try to describe it for people? Sure. I suppose the very first thing I need to say is it's a learning compass. So it's not a prescription of a curriculum. It doesn't say every curriculum should include the following. It's not overly detailed, it's a vision. And we chose the metaphor of a compass very specifically because we thought we needed something broad enough that would provide direction for systems in developing education curricula, which would direct students towards an agreed outcome. And the outcome we could all agree on was, was really summarized in that one word, well-being. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But what does the compass look like? Well, visually, it is a compass and it's built of a number of elements. And those elements include core competences. So it says curricular really needs to pay attention to a range of core competences. These are the foundation blocks on which access to learning is built. So they include old reliables of literacy and numeracy. But actually, our conceptualization of both those competencies has expanded. So, for example, in literacy, we, we talk not just about the ability to read and write, but we talk about health literacy. And we talk about financial literacy. We talk about ecological literacy, digital literacy. So literacy and numeracy have been extended to, uh, I suppose, include a whole range of skills and competencies that young people will need. That's the core or foundation at the centre of the compass. And then just circumnavigating that are a set of what are called transformative competencies. And these are new competencies in the sense that they're the first time that there's been a systematic articulation of competencies which are about how we live together rather than a content that we acquire or a skill that we acquire. So the first of those, for example, is about creating new value. And that, that first competence, which is around creating new value, it speaks to the capacity we help young people to develop, ask questions, to address problems, to engage their imagination, and to come up with solutions, alternative pathways. It's actually quite a sophisticated competence, and it's an amalgam of things like critical thinking, um, it's creativity, problem solving. It requires them to imagine consequences. So if I did, what if? what would happen next kinds of thinking that we really want to engage students in. The second transformative competence is about reconciling tension and dilemma. And it's simply an acknowledgement that actually, if this curriculum um, we're trying to articulate or develop each of us in our own context, our own national context, is one which is intended to prepare young people for a world we can't yet predict, then we have to teach them how to cope with unpredictability, with shame, with being upset. And actually, if you think of um, experience our young people have been through in the last 18 months across the world because of the pandemic, where their lives were, were like everybody's lives, subject to enormous upheaval, certainties such as getting up and going to school, knowing um, who I was going to meet during the day, 
making plans about who I would hang out with in the evening, advancing my ambition to become a musician or a sports person, whatever it was, all of those were thrown into disarray over the last 18 months. And so this competence of reconciling tensions and dilemmas is actually the competence most educationalists and those concerned with the well-being of young people have been talking about for the last 18 months. How do we teach children resilience? How do we help them learn how to manage disappointment and challenge and difficulty in a way that doesn't be um, force them to consider only themselves as individuals, but also to consider how they are impacting the community they live in and through that community, the wider world. Can I pick up on that theme for a second? It seems like, um, you know, young people do get practice in some of those things, maybe not quite as intentionally as you just put it, but uh, with uh, resilience, uh, the pandemic has certainly given everyone a lot of practice with resilience and you know, young hearts get broken and uh, people miss critical kicks on the soccer field or they flub lines in the play or, you know, there, there's sort of no shortage of opportunities for those sorts of things. It just seems like um, um, school is, um, they mostly happen in life and uh, not so much in sort of school per se. And uh, I think the question is more sort of how to bring more of that life into uh, into school for better and for worse. Well, that's a really good question. And actually my husband who has served his time as a soccer coach with underage teams regularly tells me that you can't be on a soccer team unless you're resilient because you're dropped from a game or you're substituted. And, you know, it's there are opportunities there. Um, I'm going to pick up on that word you use at the beginning. What we're talking about is intentional learning, intentional teaching and learning of these kinds of skills in schools. And actually, you're quite right. I think schools do provide a lot of opportunities. And one of the things we've been doing is collecting stories from children themselves and from teachers around how they are intentionally helping students um, to develop, to have opportunities to develop resilience. Um, one of the big challenges, and I'm not going to pretend we have all the answers yet, really can be summarized in how prepared are we to allow children to experience failure without condemning them in schools. Very often, you see, on the soccer pitch, the guy who misses the penalty kick, his teammates are disappointed for him. He feels that disappointment. He's disappointed himself. He gets up and he goes on to play another game and he gets the opportunity to reflect on the experience with the help of his coach and maybe his teammates not so helpfully, depending on how they feel about it. He gets the opportunity to reflect upon it. And that's a third element of our learning compass, which is that anticipation, action, reflection cycle, which is really around it's not enough to have the experience. You really need to have the opportunity to unpack that experience, to think about it and learn from it. In most school systems, certainly the ones that are participating in this project, failure is not something we're terribly comfortable with. We, we assume that a student's inability to complete a task reflects A, on them, but B, on their teacher and through the teacher on the school and through the school on the system and through the system on the government. And God help us if we participate in PISA and we have a problem. You, you get my drift. It, it escalates all the way up. And so we need to ask a really tough question of ourselves. And it's one of the questions we're really engaged with now in phase two of our project around that how questions, how do we align measuring student success? What does student success mean? And how do we align that with curriculum change for, in a way that promotes the well-being and success and learning of students? Well, if we have students who, for example, are given the opportunity to um, engage in learning in school, to fail at that learning, reflect on it, and then to actually be graded, not so much on the achievement, but on the process they went through and the learning that emerged from that process. Maybe that's one of the methods we could use, but I, I just propose it as one. So you've raised PISA. 
which is where many, many people will know the OECD from when they think about OECD and education, they think about the PISA, international PISA assessment. So, so how does that, that uh, global assessment um, square with the work of Education 2030, which is, um, you know, moving more towards those global competencies as, as, as you've been describing them, how, and, and that resilience and so on, how, uh, when it, when often it seems that the OE, the the PISA assessment results are are there to create league tables and uh, to rank and sort jurisdictions. Um, Rod, you put me on the spot asking me that question because <laughs> that's one of the questions we're engaged in thinking about. And actually, there are a number of levels on which I could we could address that question. So certainly at what I would call the administrative or organisational level, the PISA project is a separate project from the Education Twenty Thirty project. So they have separate management boards, they work on separate threads. However, there, we would certainly hope that the emerging thinking of Education 2030, which remember is being generated by participating countries, the majority of whom also participate in PISA, is, is generating a richer dialogue around PISA and how the PISA tests are being developed. So I'm not going to ascribe causality here at all. It, I, I have no evidence to do so. But it is interesting that over the last while, PISA itself has begun to extend the range of measures of student outcomes. And, and so, for example, global competence, financial competence, it has extended those. The other um, level at which I think your question really does beg an answer, and I'm not going to pretend I have it all, but I share my thoughts on it, is um, the whole business of league tables and ranking and how governments respond to the PISA outcomes. Um, and I, I share the concern of many of the people who participate in our project that league tables um, be, are used inappropriately in various jurisdictions. And, and the only people who have responsibility for that are the governance themselves who take those actions. Um, in Ireland, we have avoided uh, for a very long time, we actually have um, ministerial directives. Ministers for Education have the capacity to make a decision around whether or not the outcomes of our students in our graduation examinations, which are called the Leaving Certificate, are made public by school. Um, and successive ministers have refused to grant that permission, which means there are no league tables in Ireland. It is not possible to tell whether your child does better in one school or another based solely on Leaving Cert exams. And that comes from a long-held often challenged um, belief that league tables contribute to the reduction of educational experience for children in classrooms. As it is, we already have a concern about how end in terminal school assessments throw a shadow back on what happens in classrooms. If I extrapolate from that up internationally, the same thing can happen. These league tables can throw a long shadow back and policymakers who are not necessarily educators can feel compelled to make decisions, policy decisions, which are not necessarily in the interests of the student. At the same time, it is important that we assess what our students are learning in order to know whether or not the various initiatives we might implement are bearing fruit. Um, and also, um, in many ways, those kinds of results can serve as a very useful and necessary kick up the backside to a system. And again, I'll just give an example from Ireland. Um, in 2009, we were extremely shocked to discover that our outcomes in reading literacy had dropped significantly from the previous cycles. Um, and you, you know, the Irish love to talk. You can hear me doing a lot of it. And we pride ourselves on having a long literary tradition and uh, a, lo a lot of respect for reading and books. So this was a huge shock to us. And it meant, it gave impetus at a governmental level for the development of a national literacy and numeracy strategy, which was immediately 
implemented and had a very quick, fast impact in schools. So much so that actually by the 2012 um, piece around, we had not only recaptured the lost ground, we had surpassed it. And in fact, we surpassed the goals that were set out in the strategy. Now that begs two questions. Were the 2009 results reliable? and a true reflection were they simply a blip or did we need that kick in the backside i don't know i you know there are arguments for and against i come down on that i think they were they were was a blip in 2009 I, you know i think there was a problem there but I, I i simply quote that as an example of how international assessments can provide a lever for government to develop a cross school strategy that is going to be beneficial. Equally, they can develop policies that are not. <laughs> Joel, this is a debate that's alive and well in, in the United States, for sure, um, around large-scale assessments. And Massachusetts is a jurisdiction that uh, in the U.S. that prides itself on, on um, you know, uh, high PISA um, ranking. <laughs> uh, where where do you sit on this? Or how do you see this this interplay between transformation uh, and and uh, sort of this large scale assessment league table, or not league table uh, rankings? Well, let me say something about the Massachusetts story and then offer a sort of more general thought. Um, so um, Massachusetts in 1993 um, developed an early kind of standards framework and um, people in the state think, I'm, it's, there's no real way to know whether this is true or not, but uh, the, the widespread perception is that that um, set of standards um, really helped the state move to the top of the the U.S. rankings, so the sort of state by state uh, rankings. Now, Massachusetts has a number of advantages in the state by state rankings. It has a very educated populace, and it has uh, a quite low poverty rate. And so, those two things together, uh, you know, are two thirds of the variation in most kinds of studies. But um, anyway, so um, then uh, recently, maybe four or five years ago, uh, a new commissioner came in, Jeff Riley who I think would share a lot of the aspirations of the people on this uh, podcast. Uh, he taught a course at the Harvard Graduate School of Education where he had students, you know, lying on the floor and trying to do Rorschach tests on the ceiling. Like, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of uh, like you, Rod. He's a little bit of a, a, a maverick kind of guy. And, um, you know, he wanted to push the state forward. He adopted some of my work and other people's work on uh, deeper learning. And, um, you know, I think, but the thing was that um, there's a test in Mass, the uh, MCAS, the Massachusetts uh, State Test, and a lot of people think that that test was sort of part of the standards movement that got the state to where it is. And so he's been in a position of having to tread really carefully. I think he thinks that the test is quite uh, limiting and doesn't express the full range of competencies he'd like to see from students. Uh, I think he thinks that a lot of instruction in the state uh, through no fault of the teachers, but just because of the system is quite uh, deadening. And yet he has to, you know, so they created an initiative where like 14 schools that wanted to do some different things, got some waivers and were able to try some different things. But anyway, long story short, um, the sort of perceived success of the, of the um, previous initiatives constrained the ability to innovate and made it so that someone who really wanted to innovate had to move very gingerly so as not to alienate all the folks who thought that what they had been doing before uh, had been uh, the, the key. There's a, there's a joke at Harvard that uh, Harvard is number one in the rankings and no one knows why, so we better not change anything. And uh, I think there is a little of that uh, going on. Jal, actually, something you said there uh, was really interesting to me, and it's that notion of, you know, um, if it's working, why fix it, which can often be a barrier to development, you know, and it's it's 
provide, you know, taking the opportunity to actually identify why we're successful as well as why we're not so successful is really, really important. But it also speaks to, at a state level, um, the real constraint there is on government policymakers to ensure that if they're going to make a change, that it's the right change to make. And that's not just from a I mean, obviously, they're political advisors and those who wish the party to stay in power and be re-elected will be, will be conservative in, in how they introduce change. But very often, it's born out of a real concern for what's the impact on the child. So if there's a perception that a particular set of policies have a positive impact on outcomes for children, it's really, really difficult for, for anyone, any policymaker, to step back from that and change them. So in fact, what tends to happen, and this has been the experience of countries participating in the Education 2030 project, is that policymakers add something on top of it. And over time, what you get are layers of expectation and more and more requirements that need to be met, which are squeezing out time for real engagement in classrooms because there's there's so many statewide or nationwide um, requirements to be met because nobody's brave enough to take one egg out of the box to be able to replace it with another. The box just keeps getting bigger and more and more eggs are getting laid. Yes, I have a question about the eggs in the basket. But before we get to that, um, Rod, uh, you know, you've, you've um, worked with a number of different um, political figures in BC uh, with varying inclinations. Um, I don't know if you've run into this exact problem of, you know, being sort of, quote unquote, too successful to change. But how how have you navigated some of that? It's true. You know, BC has historically done very well on the PISA assessments, and we, we tend to be at the top of Canada and in the top two or three or five in the in the world if we looked at our BC just as a jurisdiction. Um, however, we we managed to create the narrative of that's great, but that and that and the, all those PISA skills are necessary, but they're no longer sufficient, and so it so it was kind of a an ad, and and the way we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to sort of portray our transformation efforts in British Columbia and the PISA results was that we could demonstrate that our PISA results kept getting better as we took our eye off that ball a little bit and started to look more at, at competencies. And we didn't use the OECD global competencies. They weren't around yet, but, but sort of those competency-based approach. We could say, see, while we're doing that, our children are getting these skills and and um, and competencies, and they're still able to read and write and do mathematics at the same rate or better. Uh, so we didn't really see a drop. So we we actually were able to use the PISA results as cover um, for 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 transformational change. Rod, how were you able to show that the learning remained as good or got better? Well, we had we had just the straight PISA results. We looked at looked at our at our provincial rankings, you know, o over over time, and we could see those continuing to improve, um, as well as our own assessments, um, because it allowed us to look at our own provincial and national assessments. And we don't have a lot in British Columbia. We don't really, uh, we're, we're not really too engaged in that work, but we have some. Um, and and we could sort of show that those were reliable because they sort of paralleled what we were seeing from the OECD work. So so we were really able to use the the OECD results, the PISA results, to uh, like I say to to backstop our work. The the but the big the big step, Jal, to your question was we had to get to the narrative uh, and move away from that. Well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. To it's those things are necessary, but they're no longer sufficient. So we had to craft that new that new narrative, and that's I think really um, poor being able to do that. And and much of the work we're doing in the Education Twenty Thirty project is around that, and it's around keeping in mind what the end game is. And the you know the end game is the well being of of children and through the individual child, the community they live in, society that community lives in, and all the circles that move out until you're talking about the well-being of the world. Um, so it's it's a really um, interesting shift for me to witness when, I, when I'm 
have the privilege of uh, meeting the more than 40, 50 countries who take part in our project. Um, to hear the willingness there is to explore concepts which are broader than what we might call the traditional disciplinary knowledge and the traditional um, statewide examination or assessment system that were there. Um, and, and we're hoping that, I mean, the intention of the project is that through generating examples such as the BC example and sharing it, that we can begin to alleviate some of the nervousness, willing but anxious uh, countries um, have around implementing change. Yeah, so that's, that's actually really important. Presumably another advantage of this sort of good to great frame is that it doesn't sort of set off people's amygdala in the same way. The, the fear is not there if it's clear that kids are still going to learn how to read and write and do math and those sorts of things. Okay, let's talk about eggs in the basket. Uh, I've been reading this great book uh, called Subtract, um, which is uh, written by a, a, a cross-disciplinary guy at the University of Virginia, and it synthesizes research across many different uh, domains, and it suggests that in general, we're much better at adding than subtracting uh, on everything from like they bring in people to like, you know, look at Lego towers and they tell them to make it balance better. And you could just remove one block and it would balance and people add seven blocks to support it, uh, you know, the, the way that it was. And, um, and in schools, I find that um, there's sort of a political science problem with adding and subtracting that adding is easy. All you need is somebody who wants to do it. And, you know, if people are opposed, they're sort of weakly opposed, but subtracting has concentrated costs for somebody and diffuse benefits for everybody in the longer run because the organization becomes more coherent and there's more time and so on and so forth. So um, as you are in one sense uh, adding, if you look at that learner compass, we have much wider ambitions for students than we have had previously. But at the same time, you don't, you, you yourself just said, you know, you don't want a situation where states are adding regulations and this bell and this whistle and this idea and this goal. How do you, uh, how do you put those things together? Uh, not easily. Um, that's, that's the first thing. Um, the, the simplest answer is make the egg box bigger, but that doesn't work. We know eventually, uh, in terms of scale, what actually happens is people crack one egg and ignore all the others because that's all they can manage. So I'll step out of the metaphor now and maybe speak a bit practically. One of the things, because our project is very specifically around curriculum design, and, and one of the things that we've noted countries have done, and we've published this in um, a recent volume, just the end of, I think it was October, November 2020, called Curriculum Overload, A Way Forward. We published some of our reflections and experiences across the countries participating in the project on just this issue. Um, and, and we noted that many countries who are really concerned about watching the balance, um, things such as the BC example, where you set out a vision, or I think perhaps maybe way back, um, the uh, Massachusetts example was, was similar, where you set um, a broad vision of what it is you want children to be able to do, and, and to understand at the end of a period of schooling. And then that's as far as you go. You don't mine any deeper into it and you trust the professionalism of teachers to be able to interpret that. That will only work if you don't underestimate the challenge that poses for the very professional teachers. So I'm not here in any way dissing the professionalism of teachers when I make the following remarks. Many teachers have been socialized to teach a given curriculum. In fact, in, in many of the jurisdictions participating in our project, they teach a textbook. They start on page one and they work through to page 150. And then there's a, an, a statewide examination on those 150 pages. That's how they've been socialized. I'm overstating to make the point here. Um, and now if you suddenly realize as a policymaker or as educational philosophers, or um, whatever uh, perspective you come to this question from, that actually learning should be about a lot more than those 150 pages. 
and you rec and you want to be respectful of the teachers, you cannot assume that they can step overnight or even over a period of two or three years out of the space into which they've been socialized over a long period of time into this new unexplored space. So it's it is imperative on us when we talk about curriculum change to talk about teacher education at exactly the same time, not as an afterthought. And in fact, in some jurisdictions, what they've done is they've started with teacher education and deliberately postponed the implementation of any change until they've managed to build up among the teacher cohort a dissatisfaction with the status quo. So the teachers are asking for the change. That requires the most committed and consistent political vision for education. Uh, and it's not easy to achieve that. It's really not easy to achieve it. But if we don't achieve it, what you tend to have, have is like first, first level change. It's not real change, that's surface change. It goes no deeper. Um, and, and we've had organizational theorists for a long time, not necessarily speaking about schools, but a lot of their thought is relevant here, speaking about the danger of change that's not real. It goes to what you were speaking there a little earlier about that notion of deep learning. If it stays shallow, it's not going to work. So one of the things, the big lessons that we, we, we share in the work that we've done is really empowering teachers, empowering their agency rather than diminishing it in the way that you design curriculum, and acknowledging the need for an incremental change rather than a, you know, one slam. These seem to be the more successful ways of doing it. Revolution through evolution. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a nice way of putting it. Now, I do know in Ireland, for example, we didn't do that. In Ireland, we changed our curriculum for um, lower uh, secondary. So that would be like grades. I'm trying, it, just the grades out of elementary school, the first four years after that, um, we changed it overnight. We entered four years of industrial unrest, uh, during which time we had to compromise on the curriculum intentions in order to win the teachers over. And I would say hand on heart, and my background was as a school inspector with, with responsibility for going in and looking at how this was being implemented. Um, I would say hand on heart that it, we still have a significant way to go before teachers stop paying lip service to the change. So their language and the way they talk about the curriculum has changed. The practice has changed to the extent that it's required to change because it's accountable somewhere outside of their classroom. But the rest of the time they continue to teach the way they always did. And, and I'm not faulting the teachers. I want to reiterate there. I'm not faulting the teachers for that. I, I think it was a difficulty in the way we designed and built in our implementation plan. So, Suzanne, you, you've touched on on a whole basket, not to get back to the egg metaphor, but but a whole a whole num number of things. And, and you've talked about um, teacher agency and the importance of, of teacher agency in in this work to to really get to a transformed a uh, place of deeper learning uh, for for all kids in schools. Um, and it seems to me that the OECD uh, 2030 project is structured somewhat differently than many OECD projects. It, it spent more time on the front end around building a common understanding of why the change is necessary and, a, and more time on the front end uh, creating vision. And, and I wonder if you could talk to the role of of teachers in that, but but maybe more particularly on the role of students, because students have been a really important part of the of the 2030 work. And I know walking through the OECD compound in in Paris when there's a whole raft of students, it, it creates a bit of a buzz when there's a whole pile of kids in there that they're not used to. So could you talk a little bit about why that uh, approach was taken? Uh, thanks for asking that question, Rob, because it's the it's what energizes me and inspires me to stay engaged with this project over the last number of years. Um, our project really is a community drawn from a range of education stakeholders. So we have teachers, teacher educators, researchers, um, students, lots of students. Um, we have policymakers, um, and we have non-governmental organizations, international organizations, all participating in this project, all equal voices in the project. 
um, and all acknowledged as stakeholders with important perspectives which need to be shared and from which we can all learn. So in that way, we're hoping that what we generate out of this project is, um, is, some, is a form of consensus that can inspire any stakeholder, whatever their role is in the education sphere, but also which is something that will continue to evolve and grow and is reflective of genuine lived experience rather than simply a theory around how it might be. Um, so we have been working very hard to ensure that we hear the voices of educators and we hear the voices of um, students. So I'll start with the students. We have, um, our organizationally, we're divided into three focus groups. Uh, don't ask me why we got that title. I joined after they had been assigned, um, because I'm not sure this necessarily, we share the common focus. But the first group is made up of government representatives and policymakers, and they're really the guys with money and who are in the end going to make the decision. So there is a power differential, although it's not intended to be one there. And part of my job is to make sure that that power doesn't become um doesn't overwhelm our project in any way and and and, and remain we maintain the balance uh, intended in our in our global forum group the second focus group is the one to which rod we're delighted you belong and it's the one where we bring together teacher educators the non-governmental organizations teachers themselves um, and that's because those are the people who are the practitioners who are working at the coalface. I hate that phrase and I've just used it. Oh, but you know, the people who are working in the classroom or who are preparing teachers to work in the classroom or who are engaging in alternative ways of delivering education provision. Um, and they have a raft of experience to bring. And it's really important that we hear from them and that because they are the ones against whom say ideas that might emerge from me, I, I, my background is in policy development. So the, the ideas that might emerge from me need to be grounded in lived experience of educators like Al and, and Rod, who come straight back at me and say, no, that's a lovely idea, but it won't work. I've got 35 kids in my class. Um, and most of them haven't had breakfast when they show up. You know, so, so that's really important that we get that balance. And our third group is made up of students. And we keep the students in a separate group, not because they're a rarefied um, uh, group. It, in a way, it's to help them, first of all, you know, you have a responsibility if you're, if you're interested in listening to students, in giving them the capacity to speak authentically. So they're, they're in a group so that we can, if you like, work with them to help them find their voice and then step back and let them have let them have that voice and i'm delighted to say that at this stage in the project we now have a student advisory group made up of students who who direct the students teach them uh, coach them and how to speak up and to share their experiences so that's really important because they talk about the impact what it feels like to be in the classroom or what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a particular form of evaluation or assessment um, I remain concerned that we don't have as loud a teacher voice as we should have in our project. Um, and, and so I regularly invite participating countries to nominate teachers, to publicize our work among teachers. I don't have um, a clear explanation of why we don't have more. And, and when I speak about teachers here, I mean people who, whose, whose main occupation currently is standing in front of students in classrooms, in schools, working directly with them. We have lots of teacher educators and people like me who used to be teachers. Um, but we really need those who are living in the classroom because their perspective on what it's like right now is, is important. We do have those teachers. I just would like their voice to be a little bit louder. Um, our current work is around developing what we're going to call the teaching compass. It's kind of, um, other side of the learning compass. I don't know yet what it looks like because our work is iterative and developmental. So I could tell you what it might look like today and tomorrow it'll be different because somebody else will have added in their piece. But we're, we're currently exploring the notion of a teacher, of a teacher uh, teaching compass. Um, and for that, uh, we're hearing from teachers around how you align pedagogical practices and choices made around pedagogical approaches, how you align 
assessment practices and evaluation practices with curriculum change. And we're, and we're also hearing from teachers around what kind of training do you need? What kind and, and how ought it to be delivered? Um, um, and that's a really big conversation. So it's a very exciting one at the moment because our working groups who work, the way we work is we, we meet twice annually, typically in three-day sessions, 350, maybe 400 of us all together. As, as Rod said, it's, it's kind of wild. It's very lively. It's very vibrant. It's three days of discussion, workshops, talks. We don't typically have a guest speaker who comes in. This is us talking about the work we are doing and pushing forward ideas and themes and threads that are emerging from that work. But in the background, uh, we have working groups, again, composed of volunteers from across the project who are driving forward those threads and those themes for us. So that's, it's a very exciting and um, yeah, an energetic project to be involved in. So I have uh, one, one last question for, for both of you. Um, and Rod, maybe I'll start with you. Um, so it seems like, um, reforms work best when the goals that are set by policymaking bodies meet the felt needs of students, teachers, and community members. And when those things are aligned, then good things happen. And when they're misaligned, then no matter what, you know, puppet marionette strings you try to pull, people find ways to you know, game the system or do what they wanted to do anyway, um, or that there, there's radical distortions. Um, David Cohen and I wrote a paper called Why Reform Sometimes Succeeds, and we differentiated between reforms that um, reforms that um, were reforms that um, made things that reformers wanted, but teachers didn't, and reforms that actually met teachers' felt needs and found a great uh, discrepancy between those two categories. Um, and so it seems like if we're going to follow that, then the next step is um, some kind of movement building at the teacher and student level. Um, and that also might accelerate the pace of change because um, those are the people closest to it. And those are the people that uh, people at the you know levels like principals and districts need to respond to. Um, what what might it look like to pair the competency work that you're doing at the global level with a kind of movement building strategy that's closer to the ground? So, Rod, I'll, I'll start with you and give Suzanne a moment to think, and then Suzanne next. Yikes, that's a good one. Um, <clears throat> I think it's an important point you've made, um, Joel, for sure. That you know, in, in my experience, would say you can't really change anybody else except yourself uh so so people have to want to change otherwise you get those at best superficial uh, uh, change processes um so so to me it's really about setting the scene it's creating the narrative uh about the need to do things differently uh and then how the system whether it's at this provincial level or state level or school level district level um can support teachers in their goal to you know we can help you accomplish the things you want to accomplish um and, and i found often it, it it it's often a, a, a fairly simple way to do it that that often works at the outset is is to take teachers back to why did you become a teacher and and nobody really says it's because i just love the periodic table and uh i want to make sure that the kids all memorize every part of it it's it's to bring the joy of science or the joy of learning and 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 i had this great teacher who got me so excited about um learning that you know uh, I, I want to impart that. So it's like, well, how can we help you get back? What's in the way of that? Well, there's too much content in the curriculum. There's too much this, there's too much that. So bringing people back to why, why are we in this enterprise in it? You know, it's, it's, we're teachers, so it's clearly not for money or for holidays or, or stress-free working environments. Um, so what is it that you want to get back to? And, um, and then figuring out how together we can all move down that road um, and uh, aligning the, as Suzanne talked about, aligning the policy work with the, the goals of, of, uh, 
of teachers and students and parents. And I, and I think it's it's also often that we don't bring parents into the conversation enough because they, they often want to go back. They have this, you know, as human beings, we have a great ability to forget. And uh, they think that their, their time in school was golden. And they want to go back to it just like it was for me in high school. And I often ask parents, so you loved high school? And they go, oh, God, no, I hated every day of it. So it's, and so you wish that on your child? Um, so bringing them back to some reality about what what their schooling experience was like and how it did or didn't prepare them for the for the world out there. Um, but it's helping people meet their own needs and goals and aspirations rather than I want you to meet mine as a policymaker. So I think it's it's spending time on the front end, just just like Suzanne has described the OECD has done. Suzanne, what's your what's your take on that? Okay, I'm trying to think how to come into this, John, because there's a couple of things. The first thing I wanted to say is that yeah, it is around meeting felt needs, but sometimes people don't need know they feel those needs, and and as as Rod said, yeah, bringing them back to why they why they became teachers in the first place can be a good strategy. I also think there is there is an important space that we have to allow for the visionary reformer who maybe who moves faster than everybody else, but actually by doing that shines a light which helps people to see that to feel their need, if you know what I mean. So it's getting the balance right between the two. I'm not sure that um, one of the one of the big um, dichotomies, false dichotomies that emerged in the early days of the work of this project uh, certainly was was very live when I joined it, was this notion of if you move towards competencies, what about the traditional disciplinary knowledge? And there's this notion that somehow they were in competition with one another, and it took us a really long time. Bear in mind, we were working with people in, across a variety of jurisdictions in very different socioeconomic, geopolitical uh, contexts who were coming at this from different traditions, etc. And it really engaged people until we began to just unpack the notion of why we were setting things up in opposition to each other. And so I'm approaching this question with the same degree of, of um, caution. You know, it's a change happens not just because people feel the need to, for it to happen, but sometimes it's because a light bulb gets switched on, maybe not by themselves, but by a reformer. So, so both those things can happen and, and we need to have the space for both to happen. Um, there's a tension sometimes between my felt needs as an educator um, and the needs of a society that I, okay, I'll, let me put it this way. Um, I remember my very first boyfriend, uh, when I told him I was going to train as a teacher, was highly dismissive and told me, he said, well, welcome to the middle class. I'll give you five years and you'll be driving a small car and wearing a suit. <laughs> Remember, I became a teacher back in the like in in the eighties, right? Uh, he was right. He was absolutely right. You know, um, I I could only have the aspiration to be a teacher because my family had educated me to allow that possibility open up. Uh, I had I had the possibility to go to college and qualify, and then I had the confidence that that gave me to go and knock on a door uh, and and ask for a job and to get one. There is a whole sense in which, as a as an educator, I have to consciously climb over my middle class um, background, really engage with the lived reality, and that reality has changed so much since I first became a teacher. Rod spoke of parents who have rose tinted spectacles when they look back on their own um, education experience. Um, reality is that education is a tough experience for everybody. It always is. It's a tough experience for the educator and for the children who are in the classroom with that person. In fact, everybody's learning in that classroom. So I think there's a space where we have to say, if you want to bring about successful change, you have to start with helping teachers to become reflective about their practice and give them space, but not reflective on their own. That's not sufficient. They need to be helped to and given the opportunity to be reflective in collaboration, not just with the colleagues in their school, but colleagues from schools working in other contexts. Because that's the only way they're going to get the big picture. That is really the only way they're going to get the big picture. So I think that's a really important thing. Give teachers time reflect and make expectations
application of that reflection part of normal if you like social contract involved in teaching you know make that that happen i think that's a really important one because um there is always going to be a tension between my individual felt need and the felt need of the system you know and and then need of the visionary that's that's going a long way jal i'm not sure if i really engaged with your question in terms of the 2031 um well all i can tell you and this will take me back to rod's opening remarks about how do you move people with vastly different perspectives and vastly different experiences towards consensus. And so I'm going to finish by sharing my five big lessons, if that's okay. Uh, and they are, the first thing is you have to give time and space to it. There is no quick fix. And, and if I have learned anything through my experience in this project, um, it is the importance of having um, someone or some group of people who are influential in education and who are not afraid to help politicians hold back the tide of change for change's sake and to give people time to grow into the change and to understand it. Um, and that speaks, I suppose, Jal, to your, to your question there about, you know, giving people time to feel the need. Um, Second thing then is never underestimate the value of a shared goal or, or a vision of the ultimate outcome of education as a resource for addressing tensions and conflicts. So if in the end you can bring people back to who is education for, who is it benefiting, what do we want to happen as a consequence and the answer to that question isn't always just the children in the classroom because we want the children in the classroom to benefit so that society will ultimately benefit i mean think of the big conversation there is in the developed world about the upcoming pensions crisis we won't you know, how are we going to manage or the healthcare crisis for the elderly that's a product of demographics but it's an important question so where does education fit in? So there are big questions that we can engage people in considering. And when you achieve some sense of cohesion around where we want to take it, in, in Education 2030, we summarize it in that word well-being, um, then it can be an enormously uh, useful resource for addressing conflict and helping people to arrive at consensus and be open to making compromises. And the third thing I'm going to say is, allow the ground rules for engagement to emerge organically. Now, that doesn't mean when you're working with people, start off uh, and ignore the normal social niceties that are um, established in your particular culture or context. One of the experiences we have was that the students taught us how to work with students. And over the last, Rod might remember this, about two years ago, one of the students stood up and said, before we break into our small working groups, can I give this advice to you adults who will have students in your group? And he laid down a set of ground rules that were amazing for working with the students in our, I won't share them with you because they were very contextualized in our work. Um, but it, it would, to me was a lived example of how if I as chair of the session had asked the adults to behave in particular ways, they, I, it would have been colored by me as an adult and how I thought we should re relate to students. But the rules, the ground rules emerged. And actually I've noticed that, that was most obvious with the students, but I've noticed it um, emerge from our work with all of the participants in our project, that eventually they established their own rules for how you engage. I, again, keeping in mind the variety of cultures that are represented in the group. It's, it's very interesting. I know you're trying to go to your fourth and fifth, but just a quick comment on that one. And we got to wrap up soon. Um, it seems like a part of what Rod and I have been thinking and talking about uh, and working with people on over the last little bit is sort of how change happens when it's not linear, command and control, planned in advance, et cetera. And it seems like what you just said is a, a good sign of that, that good processes uh, are organic, they respond to the people in the room, but norms that work in one setting might not work in another setting, etc. And I think the the challenge for 
groups like the OECD is to realize that that same process of change is what's going to have to happen all the way down. Uh, and thus, I, I do think there's a role for the OECD, and I do think that aligning that setting the right kind of ecology makes it easier for people closer to the ground to work in constructive directions. But I think there can be a temptation to think like, okay, we have the beautiful learner compass. And then if only everybody subscribed to that, then uh, the world, I'm not saying you would say this, but the world would be a wonderful place when in fact, at each level, people need to do some version of what you just said. And that takes me to point number four. Great which is invest in developing a core team who have the responsibility to maintain the focus and momentum of your change project, of your change agenda. Because the danger if it, when you don't do that, if you leave it all organic, is that you get an uneven development. And while that uneven development might be authentic and genuine, it's not equitable for the students who, who are, so you need to be really, really careful that you don't end up privileging the already privileged and leaving the, those who have all kinds of disadvantage even more disadvantaged because they are attending schools in school districts that don't have the, the um, resources to change in the same way. So it's important, my point number four was make sure you invest in, in a team of people who having the broad strokes of the vision are willing to push it forward and to maintain the momentum and brave enough not to get sidetracked. Um, we had that experience right through COVID where our advisory group and our thematic working group had to really, despite the really strong pressure on us to respond to what I'll call immediate and urgent concerns, and we, we didn't disregard them. We actually ran a series of webinars to do that. We maintained the focus on the core work of our project um, as, as another thread. It just meant a bit more work because we were going through unusual pandemic times. That's important. And my fifth one is the one around celebrating your successes. If you don't tell people it's working, they won't know it's working. So you've got to capture those successes everywhere everywhere and share them and that goes back to point number one give teachers time to work to reflect to be collaborative with one another in those spaces let them share their successes and 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 then move those successes up the line so uh, there ended my sermon i apologize i told you we irish love talking <laughs> I've often wondered if you get paid by the word or by no. Uh, <laughs> no, they could never risk that. Right. <laughs> uh, thanks, Suzanne. We we typically end and end our podcast with the lightning round, but but I think that you've done such a beautiful job with those five lessons learned that uh, we'll leave it there and we'll bring you back for the lightning round um, uh, when we would love to have you back on the on the pod and dig into. There's so many strands, threads we could have pulled on um, during uh, this conversation that we'll, we'll, I think Suzanne will need to bring you back and and um, and have that, and then and then we'll we'll go for the lightning round. Our, our producer Gino just loves to run his sound effects of the lightning crashing, and uh, so I apologize to Gino that we're not going to do the lightning round. Um, Suzanne, just want to thank you so much for for your spending your time with us and your your thoughtful answers, um, and and giving us a peek into that multi-jurisdictional, international uh, consensus-building work that is that is happening with Learning 2030. As uh, It's such important work for the world. We often get wrapped up, you know, here in British Columbia or in Massachusetts or in Canada or the United States with, with our own work, that it's important to think more globally. Um, and and the, the the disparate types of jurisdictions that are engaged in the 2030 work is quite breathtaking. Uh, I don't know how you feel, but when I sit and look around that that table in that big, when we used to all get together in that big, massive room, um, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about all those different worldviews and economic conditions and um, histories. Uh, it, it's just stunning that they're able to be, to, to move 
towards a, uh, a fairly common perspective and view around what learning needs to look like in the future. And that's a large part to your to your leadership and and shouldn't shouldn't leave out Zhao Costa because Zhao is, is, is certainly is certainly certainly part of that, that work, leading that work. Yeah, and Pile and Suzukan, we, we, we have a five person team at the top. So I just get to be the face at the front of it. But there's a five person team who are really pushing it. So we have Korea, we have Japan, uh, we have Portugal, uh, uh, myself and Estonia. So, you know, we work together really well as a team. Pretty cool stuff. So, Suzanne, uh, again, thank you so much for for spending uh, spending the last hour with us and, and, and our free range humans gang. Thank you very much, Rod. And um, I would just, uh, any of your listeners, please just look up OECD Education 2030. There is a plethora of material there that explains all of this much better than I could. Doubtful. <laughs> Thank you, Jal. This is Rod Allen. And this is Jal Meda. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Thank you, Suzanne Dillon, for joining us today. Thank you.